So let's pray together before we do anything else. Now, our Lord, we thank you for this day that we can set aside to worship you. And we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace. Lord, we, every time we come, we pray that you would open our eyes and open our hearts. And we pray that you would do that now. Lord, we need to hear your word and we need to be able to take it to heart. Lord, your word is precious and it restores and refreshes our souls. And we ask that it would do so today. Lord, we know of others whose hearts are heavy right now. We pray for the family of Joe Burns. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen them. We pray that you would comfort them. We pray that you would reassure them. <clears throat> and give them a joy that is not just hilarity, but a joy that is a peace that only you can give. Now, Lord, we dedicate these moments to you as we look into your word. As we've said before, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to receive. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> we don't read a lot out of Micah, but the book of Micah is really a very important book to the Jewish people. As a matter of fact, whenever the wise men from the east came into Jerusalem and asking, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And Herod goes and talks to religious leaders and they said that he is going to be born in Bethlehem. And then they quoted a passage from Micah. <clears throat> Back whenever Jeremiah was a prophet who served after the period of Micah. One time that uh, uh, religious leaders quoted, <clears throat> uh, from, quoted, and quoted from Micah in defending Jeremiah of all things. But here is a, the last chapter here reminds us something. That Micah, he prophesied during a, a difficult time. Society was, was at a low point. But <clears throat> he, uh, he still was able to rejoice. Let's begin here with verse 1 of chapter 7. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat. No first ripe figs uh, that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar the most upright of them like a thorn hedge. <clears throat> the day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt and the daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in the darkness, the Lord will be light to me. Now, our text in Philippians will be verses 14 through 18. Let me tell you a little family story here. I have several nephews. I haven't stopped to count them any time lately. Uh, 
But I will have to say this. By and large, I'm very proud of my nephews. Three of them are in the ministry. Today, I want to tell you about two of them that, well, they're not. At least not yet. Who knows? <clears throat> the brothers, the, these two brothers, there's three years difference in their ages. And back when the older one was really in elementary school, like first grade, he struck me as being what we would call a precocious child. In other words, he had a mind that seemed to be several steps ahead of most kids his age. And when he became seven, he began to understand what it meant to be a Christian, what it meant to believe in Jesus Christ, to have his sins forgiven, and to follow Jesus Christ. And oh, he was so excited about the prospect of being baptized. And he said when that happened that he felt like he was clean all over. Now, mind you, his little brother was only four years old at the time. But this seven-year-old decided to make his four-year-old little brother his first evangelistic conquest. And he told his little brother that he needed to put his faith in Christ and to follow Christ. Well, a four-year-old just really didn't seem to be interested in what Big Brother was saying. So Big Brother said, well, do you want to walk in the darkness or do you want to walk in the light? And the young one said, I want darkness. <laughs> and Big Brother concluded the witnessing session by saying, well, that's too bad. Only a brother could do that. Well, our question today is, do you walk in the light? And if so, <clears throat> are you a light to those in darkness or a light in a dark world? Let's read our passage here. The apostle writes this, Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. <clears throat> well, we're talking about this idea of being a light in a dark world. And, and the world, although he doesn't say anything about darkness here as much as he does light, understand this, light always implies darkness. And what we read about here is a world that is not just dark, but because of the darkness, it is twisted. Our passage states that, <clears throat> that God's people, you and I, are supposed to be lights in a twisted world. Now, this is not the only place in the Scripture that we see this. If you were to read in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus tells his listeners, "'Ye are the light of the world.'" A city that is set upon a hill cannot be hidden. The idea of light is going to imply darkness. And our world has been in darkness ever since sin came upon the scene. And it seems to me, at least, and probably to you, it seems to me that our society is growing darker by the year. Think about it. Churches are under attack. And it's not just that they're being reviled. 
50 years ago, we never heard of someone marching into a church house on a Sunday morning and then cutting loose on people and shooting and killing people. Churches are being set afire by young men who say that they're doing it simply because they hate God. The church where I was a pastor in Yorktown before, I mean, in Orange, Texas, before I moved up to this area, <clears throat> shortly after I moved away, there was some teenage boy that broke into the church on a Sunday night and got inside and, and tried to set the sanctuary on fire. He didn't really cause much of a blaze because he didn't know how to start a good fire, but the one thing he did do is he smoked the place up and did $400,000 worth of damage to the church. The next day he was arrested. He was asked why he did it, and he simply said it was because he hated God. Isn't that terrible? That's the type of a, the, the world that we live in. What once was con condemned in our society is now being applauded. We could say that it, we're, we're broad-minded today and we consider anything that is moral to seem that as, as if it were something that was narrow-minded. Sexual morals today are tossed aside and our morals are little better than that of wild animals, if at all. Sexual predators roam our streets and even the, the aisles of our churches. People are filled today with anger and hatred. The leaders that we have are no longer examples to follow. And religious leaders seem to be more interested in money than they do in salvation at times. We, we look to everyone and everything else to God, everything else but God to heal us. Our politicians are no hope for deliverance. The Republicans can't save us. The Democrats can't save us. The Independents can't save us. They can't bring light into our darkness. Understand this, and I know this is something that you should know, but we need to keep it in mind. God is our only hope for light. No one else can give us a light that is going to uh, be such that the darkness cannot put it out. The next thing that we see in here, we see in verse 15, is this call for light. Because we are called to be lights. It is our duty as believers. So, let's think about this, this word light in verse 16. What is meant by light in this verse? What does he mean whenever we are supposed to be lights in a twisted and perverted world? What does it mean, therefore, for us to be lights? Well, what we need to do if we want to understand this idea of us being a light, we have to go back to the beginning, to the one who created light, to the one who said, spoke in the darkness and said, let there be light, and there was light. Often, God is referred to not only is the one who is the one who gives light, but he is also referred to as light itself. And when such as like, here's a passage that would be a good example of that. And it would be 1 John chapter 1 verse 5 where it says God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Right here in that verse, what it means by saying that God is light, it is a reference to his holiness and his purity. There is no evil in God. He has no deceit, no hypocrisy, no greed, no ulterior motives. He is not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone else to do evil. Therefore, when, when we talk about God, that's who he is. And therefore, whenever we are referred to as lights in the world, that means that he has called us and he has equipped us to reveal and reflect his own holiness and purity.
And there is a crying need for holiness today among those who claim to be the people of God. You know, back, I don't know, it's close to 20 years ago. It was back when Southern Baptist churches were still having a thing in the spring that we call the spring doctrinal study. And unfortunately, I haven't heard a church have one of those and I do not know when. But about 20 years or so ago, the topic for the spring doctrine study was holiness. And it was the pursuit of holiness. And I, ended, I was asked to, to do some Bible studies on that at a couple of different churches and to speak on it at another meeting. And so I thought, well, you know, I need to gather together some books that might help me out on that. And it's interesting. I was looking in the catalog of one of the major Christian book sellers, mostly a, a mail order business. And get this. I found more on Christian dieting and exercise than I found on holiness. I mean, that's pretty bad. You know, and, and, and maybe what the reason that we don't equate holy, maybe the reason that we don't uh, talk about holiness that much is because we equate holiness simply with being religious or attending church. But holiness means God-like character. To be holy means to be blameless. In other words, we can't say that a person that is a holy person is not going to be someone who uh, may pursue a, a so-called religious lifestyle, but he's also pursuing another lifestyle that is not religious at all. To be holy means to be simple and sincere. Not simple-minded, but simple and sincere. That means to have only one side to our character you see in a holy person is what you really get. He is not one way in one setting and one way in another way in another setting. So that what people see in us if we are holy is they see us as we truly are. Now folks, there is no way that you and I can show someone who God is and who Jesus is if we do not pursue holiness and purity. There is no way that we can reflect and reveal God's character. There is no way that we can be a light. You may be able to get someone to come to church with you a few times, but there is no other way for you to fulfill your duty to God unless you act as a light, revealing God's holiness in your own lifestyle. Now, I've heard people say this whenever this was brought up, and they would say, oh, well, I ain't no preacher, you know, so I, I, there's no way I can do that. Well, listen, you may not be a preacher, but there's no excuse for a, a lack of holiness. Holiness is not the exclusive domain of ministers. The Bible tells us, and it's not speaking just to ministers and preachers, but it is speaking to all believers where it says that we are to pursue holiness without which no one shall see God. Look it up in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14. So, we're called to be holy. We're called to, to, to be lights in a, in a dark and twisted world. But there's another idea in this. In verse 16, it tells us that... that what we are supposed to do is to, uh, is, is to hold on to the word of life or hold fast to the word of life. The word of life is the gospel message. In other words, it's the good news from God. And this title that we would have for the gospel, 
the word of life, is a title that we really we can extend it to all the scriptures and apply it to all the scriptures. The Bible is what we would call the word of life because it shows us the way to find real life. As a matter of fact, the Bible gives life. You remember whenever Jesus was fasting in the wilderness after his baptism and he was tempted by Satan... And Satan told him, Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. And Satan pointed out some rocks. He said, if you really are the Son of God, why don't you speak and make those stones turn into bread? You remember what Jesus said in reply. Matter of fact, what Jesus said in reply was a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And he said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What he is telling us is this, is that the word of God gives life. The question, if we were to ask the question, how can one have real life? Well, the way that we have it is by believing and receiving the word of God. God's word is powerful. This teaching that, this, that we find in what Jesus said, where it says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This verse teaches us that scripture is very much alive. We don't need any dead pious platitudes. What we need is what the Bible has to say. We don't need dead messages because nothing that is dead can give life. Only what is alive can impart life. And the Bible says that the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We hold fast to the word of life. You know, Billy Graham has, we've, you know, we've not heard a live broadcast on him in a long time, but, you know... Whenever you would hear him, <clears throat> there was one thing that he would do, and he would, he would talk about what the Bible has to say, and he always had his Bible, and he would be holding it up, and he would say, but the Bible says this, the Word of God says this, the Scripture says this, and this was the thing that he would hold fast to. I don't care what your opinion of him was on you know, you may have said, well, I didn't particularly like his preaching. Well, that doesn't make any difference because what I'm talk- telling you is this, is at least one thing that he did, he was always calling people back to the Bible. The Bible was his final authority. Now, because of the life-giving power of the Word of God, we are supposed to hold fast to it, as it says in verse 16. To hold fast to the Word of God means this, is that we believe what the Bible has to say. We don't consider it just some ancient religious writings that we have the option to obey or to ignore. I remember many years ago, there was was some... Uh, a lady that I I met at what we used to call a a lay renewal revival. And people would kind of get around and share their thoughts and that type of thing. And she simply said that uh, she kind of liked the gospel accounts, but she really didn't care anything about the, the epistles of Paul. She said, all that contains is just what he thinks. Those are just his opinions. Well, listen, that's really not right. 
And, and we don't have the option to accept or to reject what we find anywhere in the Bible. Why? Because all scripture is given by inspiration of God is what the scripture says. That means every verse, every line is not just someone else's opinion, opinion, but every verse, every line, every word is God-breathed. Therefore, we accept it as true. Every now and then you'll hear someone come up with some brilliant statement like, you know, I don't, I don't really believe all that's in there. Years ago, I was talking to a young man, and he was wanting to talk to me about religious matters, and he just said, you know, that he, he really didn't believe the Bible that much because he said it has so many errors in it. And so, I didn't want to argue with him because I didn't want to browbeat him, but I just said, well, where are the errors? And then I said, have you ever read the whole thing, the whole Bible? And finally, he admitted, no, I haven't read it. And no, he didn't know where the errors were. It was just that sounded good to him. Well, listen, we can accept the Bible is true. It has stood the test of time. It has been examined. It has been dissected. It has been researched more than any other piece of literature that has ever been written. And it's found today after these hundreds and thousands of years. It is still the rock that we can build our life on. And it is the word of life because it gives us life. Another reason that we hold fast to the Word of God, another way that we hold fast to the Word of God is we proclaim it. We trust in the active power of the Word of God. I know that I kind of sound like an old man ranting about the way things are today, but still, I, I, I really feel this way. And if I'm wrong, you can look me up someday and straighten me out, and I would appreciate it. But today, in our world, and in our culture, it seems that we put our confidence more in our programs or in the entertaining quality of our so-called worship services. Listen, the power of the gospel is not in our programs. The power of gospel is not in how entertaining we are. The power of the gospel is found in the word of life, the scripture, the gospel message. Now, the last idea that I have in here, we see it pick up on it in verse 14 as well as verses 17 and 18. And that God's light is seen in the joy of our service. In other words, our attitude in holding to the word of life is something that's very important. You know, as the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, I guess he would have had every reason to complain. Because, I mean, he was held prisoner by the Roman government. His future was uncertain, as you can discover when you read chapter 1 of Philippians. Uh, he did not know if his incarceration as a prisoner was going to end in release or in execution. But whenever he considered the church at Philippi, despite their shortcomings, he thought of their faithfulness. He thought of their sacrifice and their service. And he said that if he should be put to death... He would think of himself as if he were a drink offering poured out on the altar of their own faithful service and their own sacrifice. And he said, and because of that, he said, I rejoice 
And I rejoice together with all of you. And I want you to rejoice and rejoice together with me. Joy. Joy is essential to service in God's kingdom. Without joy, listen, without joy, we cannot be lights in a dark and twisted world. Notice what verses 14 and 15 are saying and implying. Notice that he says, do all things without grumbling or arguing. Those are not joyful terms. He says, do all things without grumbling or arguing so that you may be pure, blameless, and sincere in the midst of a perverse generation in which you shine as lights in the world. Do you get what he's saying? If you are negative, if you are not joyful, there's no way in the world that you can be pure and blameless and lights in a perverse world. You know, what often stymies our service is not a lack of effort, but a lousy attitude. You know, many years ago, I, I preached in a revival meeting at uh, a small church and uh, it was it was strange I mean it really was uh, the fellow that was leading the music was a friend of mine out of Baytown and he and I just he stayed with me and we drove back and forth every night and and, and remember you know the Sunday morning service was pretty <laughs> subdued and the Sunday night service was about the same way and it was really kind of odd that when the service was over with the music minister and I were the last ones to leave, and when we would leave, there was nobody else there. People weren't standing around talking to each other. They were not enjoying each other's fellowship or friendship. You really didn't see any smiles. You didn't see any joy. And on Monday night, it was the same way. And on Tuesday night, well, as we walked out, there were two men standing outside talking, I don't know about what, I guess the price of rice, I don't know. And then on Wednesday night, something really strange happened. One woman went up and hugged someone else. A few months later, I bumped into someone from that church, and she said it was the greatest revival they had ever had. Well, I would have hated to have seen the worst one. The thing is, is there was nothing joyful there until we finally saw one person hug someone else and greet them. You know, listen, a grousing argumentative church can never reflect the glory of God. And by the way, that is your purpose in living. We can, you know, the reason that it can't reflect the glory of God is because God does not grumble or complain. Our God is a God of joy. We can read this in the little prophecy of Zephaniah there in the last chapter where it says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. He will rejoice. He will rejoice over you with gladness and he will exult over you with loud singing. A church with a negative attitude may claim to stand on the B-I-B-L-E but it cannot point people to the Lord. And sad to say, wherever we go, we find churches plagued by complaining and carping and controversy. Why is it that that can happen if we as God's people are ones who possess good tidings of great joy which shall be for all people? I mean, how can that happen? 
Well, there was a, a, an English preacher from back about 100 years ago named John Jowett, and he was considered to be the most eloquent voice in the English pulpit of his day. And this is what he had to say. I, I, I couldn't word it better than he could. He said, the murmuring that we hear in labor is born of a murmuring in our prayers. We come to God with our complaints, with the sad story of our surging needs, but we do not come nearly often enough with our songs, gladly rehearsing our benefits in the light of his countenance. Many cry out, God be merciful, who never shout out, God be praised. We do not come before God in the multitude of his mercies, but rather in the multitude of our complaints. Our feeble song is almost drowned in the clamor of our wailing. That's not what our worship, with our, our worship and not what our relationship with God is about. Listen, folks, we have every good reason to praise God, don't we? And we have every good reason to rejoice in our lives as we praise him. We can know that God rejoices over us with gladness. We can walk in the light of his presence every day and rejoice in it. Do you know what it is to walk in the light of God's presence? Are you a, shining, or are you a light of God shining in the darkness which is all around you? You know, if you really know Christ, you should be. But if you don't know him, you need to put your faith in him today. Because if you do not know him, if you have not heard the light of the gospel, if you've not accepted it, you're not going to survive. As a matter of fact, the only thing that, you know, listen, man was not made to survive in darkness of any kind. The only thing that does well in darkness is a mushroom, and I don't think that we want to be that. It's past time for us to step out of the darkness. Let's pray together. Now, our Lord, we thank you that you've sent into a dark world the light of your truth and the light of salvation. Oh, Lord, cause us to put away things in which we complain. I know I do. And it's not right, and I'm not honoring you whenever I do it. Cause us all to lay aside anything that has to do with grumbling or complaining. Lord, we don't need that. Lord, we also pray that this is whenever we walk out of this place today, that we will walk out as lights in a, in a twisted world. Lord, this world is dark, and it is twisted. But Lord, I pray that you would give us not only the determination and the ability to lead holy lives, but that you would cause us to love even those who are in the darkness so that you would be glorified in us and you would be glorified in their salvation. Now, Lord, may your blessings be upon this church in all of its endeavors and in, in all the things we do. We thank you for the way that you have blessed our lives as a group being together. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen.